Well, today we begin in the book of Isaiah. We're looking at passages that highlight Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at Isaiah's first line. But before we do that, let's look at some first lines for, from some famous novels. All children except one grow up. That's from Peter Pan by J.M. Barry. You better not never tell nobody but God. That's from The Color Purple by Alice Walker. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. Master was a little crazy. He'd spent too many years reading books overseas, talked to himself in his office, did not always return greetings, and had too much hair. That's from Half of a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And of course, the most overused line in the history of church quizzes, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. That's from, of course, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Well, when it comes to first lines, I think Isaiah has got one of the best in the Bible, in all literature, in fact. It's an opening line that captures the whole basis of our confidence as believers, gives the reason for our evangelism and the impetus and motivation for our mission. It identifies us and positions us as believers within the philosophical, religious, and moral spectrum of ideas and beliefs throughout the world and throughout all generations from now until the very end. Are you ready? It's a massive first line. Here it is. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Wow. The Lord speaks. This is a message for the whole of creation. Let every mouth be closed and every ear attend, for God has spoken. Let a hush settle over history and the nations be still. The philosophers pause and the fools hold their tongues, for God speaks. He is there and he is not silent. And let the suffering soul take heart and listen, for God is, yes, a God of glory and overwhelming strength, but he's also a God of infinite tenderness and loving kindness. The Lord has spoken. We're not abandoned. We're not forsaken. We're not scratching around aimlessly searching in the dark. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Have you ever asked, why hasn't God spoken to me? If you're there, God, speak to me. I remember seeing the film version of uh, The Color Purple, and at the end there's a song by Andre Crouch where they're in church, and they're singing, speak to me, Lord, speak to me, Lord. God is a God who speaks. This is what the human heart needs. Every person is made in the image of God, no matter what culture, religion, or belief system in which they've been raised. And when God speaks, the human heart comes alive. We come to life at the voice of our Creator. We come to life at the call, the effectual call of God. And today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. 
If you've got ears to hear, then hear what the Lord has to say to you. Now, I'm going to refer to several translations through this message, but just for easy comprehensibility, I'm going to use the New Living Translation for this first reading. And it's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair that he's just been describing in chapter 8, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light And those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment, the zeal of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Wow. So now my focus isn't going to be on the short-term fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, but on its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Indeed, our passage beautifully combines a number of references that anyone familiar with the New Testament will immediately recognize a promised son whose glory will appear in Galilee and at the River Jordan and who will be called the mighty God and whose reign will never end. Listen, one of the great joys of reading the Old Testament is to discover your Jesus walking through its pages just like he walks through the pages of the New Testament. And so I've got three points. Glorious light, glorious joy, and a glorious saviour. So first thing, glorious light. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Christianity is a religion of hope. Hope in God's activity, in his sovereignty. In a time of darkness and despair, we're told not to give up. It will not go on forever. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesies that there's a time in the future when Galilee will be filled with glory. A glorious light will shine. God is active. He intervenes. Darkness will not win. And his plan, of course, is for the whole world to see this light, not only for the Jews that Isaiah was addressing at that time. Nowhere else is Galilee referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles or Galilee of the nations. 
But when he preaches this dawning of the light, it's for the whole world. A light will appear for Jew and for Gentile also. The people who walk in darkness, who work and play and live and love in darkness, religious or non-religious, a light will shine for them. One of the great mistakes is to think that because you know, you've grown up in a, in a Christian so-called context or country, that you're not in the dark. You know about Christianity. You're not hostile, you're, you're balanced. But look at the context. Isaiah is prophesying to Israel, who grew up with the traditions and the temple and the priests, and yet he describes them as walking in darkness. Or maybe you have less time for religion. You know, you're a realist, and it's a little bit sad to hear that the church is praying for this or that situation, praying against doubt, uh, drought. Or, or, or praying against corruption. It all seems a bit silly when what's needed is firm, deliberate action, not the activity of the Holy Spirit moving on the clouds of the sky or moving on the consciences of decision makers. But the Bible puts you in the same category as the religious, the half-believer. You're good-hearted, you're sincere, but have you considered that you might be in the dark on the most important question of all. The Jew who heard Isaiah's prophecy was in darkness. The Gentile who would hear God's word later was in darkness. The Jew who wanted miracles and signs was lost. And the Greek who wanted wisdom and rationality was likewise lost. Where are we without Jesus Christ? The Bible says we're in darkness, we're in darkness. You have some light, but Jesus said, if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus is the light of the world. That's why Matthew, the gospel writer, declared that Jesus fulfilled what was said through the prophet Isaiah. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, he says, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Maybe it's time for you to turn to him and ask him to come into your life. A light is promised. Hope has risen in our dark world. The light is coming and it's a glorious and a wonderful light. And I'll come back to that towards the end of the message. Secondly, we see glorious joy. There's a glorious light and there's glorious joy. The result is joy. You have enlarged the nation, Israel isn't mentioned in that verse, by the way. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice. There's a second reference before you. As people rejoice, there's the third at the harvest. As warriors rejoice, the fourth, when dividing the plunder. That's a lot of joy. That's a whole lot of rejoicing in one verse. When light dispels darkness, the result is joy. People rejoice when darkness is defeated. That's true for nations, of course. Just remember across our own land, the, the breakthrough of joy at our first legitimate elections of those great queues snaking through for people waiting to vote. There was such joy. Even the English, ah, even the English permit a limited degree of joy during national high points when the Germans were finally defeated during the Second World War, Winston Churchill told the nation, we may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing. 
or something like that. It almost sounds like, have a nice cup of tea, but don't get carried away. There's lots more to do. But there's greater and more lasting joy even than these kind of moments. And that's when the Spirit of God is poured out and the light of the gospel breaks in. When the family of God is enlarged and crowds gather and the sounds of children running in the streets and young and men and women are filled with joy and the number of disciples increase. That's especially true during seasons of what we call revival. Massive numbers of people come to Christ when the Spirit is poured out in power. Just think of Reinhard Bonnke's huge meetings in Nigeria when hundreds of thousands of people heard the gospel and put their trust in Christ. Or Ram Babu's evangelistic meetings today in India. Or Nicholas Bengu's mass meetings and church planning ministry here in South Africa. Nicholas Bengu would organise for new converts to gather their stolen goods and go down to the police stations and drop them off at the police stations. And it was reported that there was a drop in crime if Nicholas Bengu was preaching in your town. Amazing times of joy at finding God. Jonathan Edwards describes a wide-ranging revival in 1735 in his town. He says this, there was scarcely, after, after conversion began to happen, There was scarcely a single person in the town, old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. The work of conversion was carried on in a most astonishing manner and increased more and more. Souls did, as it were, come by flocks to Jesus Christ. This this work of God, as it was carried on, And the number of true saints multiplied soon made a glorious alteration in the town. The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It was never so full of love nor of joy and yet so full of distress as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. Our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister. The assembly in general were from time to time in tears when the word was preached. Some weeping with sorrow and distress. Others with joy and love others with pity and concern for the souls of their neighbours. When the light comes, conviction of sin happens. People repent of their sin and they find forgiveness in Christ and joy overflows. Meetings that were dull or poorly attended are suddenly filled with people eager to encounter God, eager to be filled with his Holy Spirit. An expectation of God's power and of his presence pervades everything the church does at such times. Multitudes of those who before were uninterested are suddenly and irresistibly drawn to where the gospel is being preached, to hear about a saviour who forgives sins, who can mend broken lives, who can reconcile you to God. As Isaiah says, the people rejoice in the presence of God. Well, note the nature of this joy. He says it's like the joy of harvest. 
of massive provision or of victory in battle, like a, like a warrior returning with the spoils. We don't really have an equivalent living here in the city uh, for either of those things. During the hard lockdown, when you would go out every few days, you'd be in for most days, then you'd go out. I would return from the shops with my bags, with the plunder, with the spoils, like a hunter-gatherer, returning, providing for my my clan before carefully cleansing everything with wipes and spray. But that's as close as, as you get towards the joy of a warrior returning with the spoils. Note the cause of this joy. The nature of the joy was that it was a massive provision. The cause of the joy, verse 4, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders. Just as Israel's oppression, political oppression in Babylon would be broken, so today as a kingdom people, our spiritual oppression is broken by the gospel. Ultimately, the nations will experience the rule and reign of Christ and the end of war, even as prophesied here. But even now as an individual, in Christ, the yoke is broken and the kingdom has come to us individually. When you put your trust in Christ, you are justified by faith. There is therefore now no condemnation against you. You are legally free. He carried your sins on the cross, received the punishment in himself instead of you receiving it. By his wounds, you are healed and you're free. You're a child of God and the Spirit of God witnesses with your spirit that these things are true. You're an heir, a citizen of heaven, and you can be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. John Calvin writes of these verses, believers whom God shall redeem will possess true joy because they have been instructed by undoubtable proof that he is their father so that they may freely boast that they will always be safe under his guidance. Hence, it is evident what Christ brings to us, namely a full and perfect joy, a full and perfect joy in Christ, of which we cannot in any way be robbed or deprived, though various storms and tempests should arise. There's glorious light, this glorious joy. We looked at its nature and its cause and a pathetic illustration about coming back from pick and pay. Now we finally come to its source, the source of it all, the glorious Saviour, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this or do this. And this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He is the Son of God. He is the light 
of the world that was prophesied. John declared, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The coming of the Son of God into our world was the dawning of that great light. All who came before and all who have followed after have merely been witnesses to that light. Isaiah had already prophesied about the coming of this glorious son back in Isaiah 7 verse 14, where we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now you know this already. Emmanuel means God with us. This is the one who is from the beginning, who was with God and who is God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. God the Son will come and the government will be upon his shoulders. He carries it. Listen, if you have any governing responsibility, whether at work or at home, in your community, it would be wise to regularly draw aside and release that to God. Release what you govern to God. I don't mean relinquish your responsibility. I mean entrust it to Him. He's the one who's carrying it because you and I cannot carry what God gives us to govern. Only God can carry it, and He does. He carries the nations, and He can carry you too. Politicians try their best, of course they do. But how many times have we heard from every different part of the world that politicians don't actually know what they're doing? I heard a former MP in England saying this recently on a podcast when he became an MP and he joined various select committees and you know, subcommittees and so on, and he got right inside the machinery of government. He was genuinely shocked to discover that nobody seemed to do, the politicians at least, didn't seem to know what they were doing. And none of them were qualified to do it either, no matter how good the school was that they had gone to. The nations are dependent upon the common grace of God. He will carry us. And then Isaiah lifts our eyes to God. He's already given us the one name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Now he gives us more. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So let's look at these amazing names as we draw towards a close. Wonderful Counselor. You know, there is counsel that brings peace-giving perspective and faith, wisdom that comes from above. And all of that is implied in this word wonderful counsel, wonderful counsellor. You may have experienced what uh, Scripture describes as a word of wisdom at some point in your life. It's a spiritual gift. It's a grace gift that comes from the Spirit of God. He is the wonderful counsellor, bringing peace that passes understanding, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Alec Motia in his commentary says, wonderful counsellor is literally wonder counsellor. 
and wonder means something like supernatural. The two possibilities are either a supernatural counsellor or one giving supernatural counsel. This kind of counsel is an expression of God's omnicompetence, counsel that can transform us in a moment of time. You're stuck, there's a stalemate, but oh, the wonderful counsellor comes in and leads you towards holy joy. Jesus promised that he would send another counsellor who would be with us, the Holy Spirit, who walks alongside us and guides us into all truth. Wonderful counsellor, the first name. The second, everlasting father. (laughs) Aren't you tempted just to, let's stop preaching and worship. Everlasting father, wonderful counsellor. When the son of God is born into this world, what happens? God is revealed. Father, son, and Holy Spirit. Who is the centre of it all? What do we find when we're looking for the centre of everything that is? What is there? What's at the core of it all in reality? Is it a bunch of amoral, you know, misbehaving, disgraceful gods like the, the old Greek gods? Is it the sinister, unpredictable idols of the world that need to be appeased and who can wreak havoc on you and your loved ones? Is it any number of false created deities vying for first place in the heavens? No, the Bible tells us who is at the heart of it all. The everlasting Father. God is love. Wonderful counsellor, everlasting Father. Right in the middle of everything that is, the coming Son introduces us to the everlasting Father. Earthly fathers, like earthly mothers, are imperfect. We make many mistakes. We get it wrong but sometimes. But God is your Father in heaven. We are temporary as fathers. And what a shock to the system it is when a good father, beloved by his family or by his people, is suddenly snatched away by death. Something stable has gone. Something central is Missing, But not all earthly fathers are good. Some are wicked and shameful, bullies in their homes or running away from their responsibilities. But look up, precious child of God. You have an everlasting father. You have a heavenly father. And all parents are emulating this wonderful God. When Jesus appeared, people were confused about the nature of God. The Pharisees, the the legalists had stung them with rejection and disapproval, only ever emphasizing the people's failures without ever examining their own lives. And Jesus appears full of grace and truth, defending the vulnerable, establishing his kingdom and saying, I and the Father are one. Whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. And Jesus says to you, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That is obviously true of her as well, but the individual precision 
of God's promise to come to you is in that verse in 1423 of John's Gospel. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and you can come to the Father through him. And then we read, wonderful counsellor, everlasting Father, he is the Prince of Peace. This seems most particularly to refer to Jesus himself. Peter said of Jesus, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a saviour to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the saviour who carried the weight of our sin upon himself on the cross and he has been raised and ascended and exalted as a prince to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins. We have peace with God through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And we can have peace in our hearts and in our minds through him as well. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Wonderful counsellor, everlasting father, prince of peace, finally, the mighty God. It seems obvious to me, I'm sure it has already struck you, that verse 6, this collection of titles that are revealed through this coming son, is a revelation of the Holy Trinity. The Father is the everlasting Father. The Son is the Prince of Peace. And the Spirit is the Wonderful Counselor. All three are one. And this is the mighty God. This is your God. He is your everlasting Father. He is your Prince of Peace. He is your Wonderful Counselor. He is your mighty God. It starts with a breaking in of light. Then you realise it's all about Jesus. And then through him you discover the majesty and the glory of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And darkness and despair are replaced with light and everlasting joy. God comes to you and makes his home with you. No wonder this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, an ever-increasing kingdom, and then the end shall come. No wonder Isaiah cries out, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Let me end in application through reading Psalm 100. How do you apply these things? Revel in them. Leap into them and rejoice in them. Psalm 100, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Now, as we see Christ in Isaiah, let's trust God. The fruit will be worship in our lives, evangelism to our neighbours and maybe even revival in our land, that God would reveal himself, that the light would break upon us 
in a whole new way. In Jesus' name, amen.